Hello, and welcome to the Metacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Bunny Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 83rd episode of the Nauticast, titled The Stuff of Heroes Part 2, an analysis of A Clash of Kings Davos 1, in which the Onion Knight gives the freshly clowned... <laughs> clown... <laughs> <laughs> That's staying in. You have to leave it in! You have Fuck. to leave it in! Emmett, and Emmett's editing, so you will leave it in! Yes! Uh, uh, perfect. Worst day of my life. The biggest Freudian <laughs> slip in all of Nauticast history. Uh, I'm in awe. Uh, in which the freshly crowned, not clown, god damn it, King Stannis Baratheon gives some sensible advice and gets a Shakespeare monologue for all of his trouble. God, I'm never going to live that down in my Emmett. You sure aren't, buddy. So as you could tell, folks, we are being joined once more by our excellent guest from part one of A Clash of Kings Davos 1. Please welcome back to the Nauticast, our own uh, High Inquisitor, Frank B. Thank you guys for uh, having me on. A wise man on this very podcast once said the essence of horror is not that there are monsters at the door. The true horror is that we're going to let them in. Thanks for letting me in for two episodes. <laughs> yeah. I would always open the door to you, sir, no matter how uh, how monstrous you might be. It's going to be a lot of fun. We've got a lot of this is going to be all about Stannis because Stannis is going to be at the forefront, back front, middle front, all the fronts of our thoughts for this episode. So it's going to be. It's going to be a very Stannis-heavy episode, which I think a lot of you guys who listen to us are really into like our Stannis takes. So I think you guys are going to get a real treat out of this one, and thank you. And it's going to be all the more of a treat because Frank is joining us. Whether you're into it or not, you are prepared for it. You can't say we haven't been warning you all the way through book one. Yeah, really dividing it up into two episodes was to give your listeners time to gather themselves for this. We're very magnanimous that way. Yeah. <laughs> Assumption of risk, as we in the legal field say. This episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the Higher Beard Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valerian, Hedricol, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor Frank, Hi Frank again, Lord James Stormborn, War of the Worldwide Weirwood, Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Richard, Sea Lord of Bravos, Kelly, Warden of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Ryan, and our newest member of the Small Council. Everyone give a warm welcome to Lord Carlos. Thank you, as always, to all our members of the Council, and special welcome to Lord Carlos. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. So our spoiler warning, as you talk about in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. So last week when we were covering the first half of A Clash of Kings Davos 1, we read out the first part of a great email from one of our sworn standardmen, Anthony P., and we thought it would be appropriate for part two of Davos 1. For this week, we would do the second half of Anthony's email. Even if Stannis lacks a conversion of the heart, by participating in the public rituals, he expects gods, or lore, to return the benefits for worship offered. Davos does the same to a smaller degree. He had been known to make offerings to the warrior before a battle, to the smith when he launched a ship, and to the mother whenever his wife grew great with child. In the exchange between the two following the burning of the seven, Davos recounts his debt to the faith. The smith has kept my ship safe, while the mother has given me seven strong sons. 
Stannis' retort could be interpreted as another in a line of misogynistic behavior, or more the like it has to do with his belief that faith in the Seven is without utility. Your wife has given you seven strong sons. Do you pray to her? It was wood we burned this morning. The king's approach to religion is best summed up by the adoption of his new Red Hawk, who would return his axe with favors. Again, this is nothing new, and I'm sure your analysis on it will be great, but it is interesting to think about this in a Roman context, or juxtaposed against a full and contemplative prayer life. <laughs> so what do, what do you guys think about that line of thinking? Yes, first. I, I think the Roman uh, analogy that Anthony w- went with last week and this week is very interesting in the fact that perhaps the most famous Roman of all time, Julius Caesar, he is very Stannis asking that he has obviously one of the greatest military records in all recorded history. And then one of the reasons that he kind of gets clued in to the opposition amongst him from the Roman nobility, who as a class do not like Julius Caesar, is because he's denied a triumph after his victories in Gaul, which is just a species of not being recognized for his many accomplishments on behalf of the state. And so Julius Caesar feels affronted by this, and this it's not the main reason that the Roman Civil War turns in, but it is a very big stickling point to the point that that's one of the first things Caesar does once he gets into power. And, you know, obviously there's actually some Game of Thrones crossovers. If you guys ever have a chance to watch the HBO series Rome, there's a ton of actors from there, including Sarian Hines, who plays Mance Raider, is Julius Caesar. And so that's kind of a good pop culture look at that. But again, the texts and the actual history bear that out. So I think that's an interesting juxtaposition because they they both approach religion, military conflict and politics in a very similar situation, often to leading to bad results. So I think one of the interesting things about Davos as this person who is embodying kind of the faith of the seven, the the religious opposition to Stannis within Stannis' own camp, is kind of how casual he is about the faith of the seven in his first second and third chapters from A Clash of Kings. But then in The Storm of Swords, in his very first chapter, he has that vision of the mother coming to rescue him, and he becomes this kind of rededicated follower of the Faith of the Seven. So I guess kind of the question I have for you guys is, you know, taking putting aside or even keeping it in context, the Roman context that Anthony put really well in his email, do you think that George had this idea of Davos being the avatar or the the true believer for the faith of the seven early on when he's writing this class chapter here and then comes back to it and, and sets this all the stuff up that he's actually a believer although he's a bit more casual his belief system and then comes back in storm and is like yeah I'm, this guy's gonna be my guy that's going to be my cudgel against relor and to try and take out melisandre's as what happens in davos's second chapter in the storm swords do you think that's what george is going for I think it's more the cudgel against R'hllor than he is really tying the Faith of the Seven consistently to Davos's character. I see the link in terms of the burning of the Seven and Davos being uncomfortable about it and bringing it up. But as soon as Davos can't kill Melisandre anymore, he pretty quickly drops <laughs> the whole I am a reborn warrior for the mother shtick. That's so true, yeah. It doesn't come up again in A Dance with Dragons, and it could because the Manderleys worship the Faith, but George does not make a thing about that. So it makes me think that was just part of George kind of working that into the plot because he wanted to set Davos against Melisandre for a little bit. As we've said before about the Faith of the Seven, as, as Anthony has, has said very persuasively and eloquently before, the Faith is where George kind of seems least invested in terms of making the religion real and making it seem like it's something that's supernaturally connecting with people, as opposed to socially and politically connecting with people. Yeah, I mean, that's because they don't have blood sacrifices, as we talked about last week. <laughs> They're just doing it wrong, guys. Keep up. 
So thank you to Anthony for the question. We really appreciate your, you're not, it's not a question. We really appreciate your email in totality as well as the, the part from part one last week, as well as the second half that we got here. So that was a lot of fun. If you'd like to ask us questions that we'll answer here on the Nauticast podcast, please consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Nauticast ASOF as a sworn sword or higher patron, where you can ask your questions that we will be forced, forced at sword point to answer here. And for all $5 and above patrons, our next Fever Dream episode covering Chapter 2 is out now. And that takes us to our upcoming Patreon episodes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Episodes? Yes, episodes plural. First, we are excited to announce that in honor of the new HBO Watchmen series, this month's patron-only episode will be all about <sighs> Zack Snyder's 2009 <laughs> film Watchmen. We get accused of agreeing too much here on the Nauticast, and now it's time to put that notion to rest. We will be discussing whether Watchmen is the greatest superhero movie of all time, or an infamously terrible adaptation that ruins one of the great highlights of comic book history. Just place your bets, folks, on who is taking which position. You guys should be forced to take the opposite position for like the first five minutes. This is not debate club, Frank. Get that fantasy out of your head. <laughs> I mostly just want to see you defend Watchmen for five minutes. I think that would be hilarious. But before that, we're thrilled to announce that next week we'll be joined by none other than legend and return guest Kim Renfro to talk about her recently published book, The Unofficial Guide to Game of Thrones, which I have actually read all the way through now. I got an advanced copy because I'm awesome. This episode will be available early for our patrons, but will also be available to the general public on Friday, October 18th. Obviously, Kim is a titan in the Game of Thrones fandom. She's always done great writing and reviews about the show. Her book is awesome. All sorts of great tidbits and details and interviews about the show that reached its conclusion this past year. Of course, we had a great time with her here on the Nauticast for Game of Thrones John 8. We're looking forward to having her uh, back on the show for this and maybe some other episodes in the future. But yeah, we're so excited to talk to her about her, her great book. My copy comes tomorrow. Oh, excellent. Good. It's it's really, really good. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't just say that because Kim's a friend. Like, it's actually a really, really good book. And, you know, uh, Kim actually thanked us on, in the acknowledgments, which is really, really kind of her. But enough about Patreon and all the exciting things coming up. Let's now do the thing. Last week on the Not A Cast podcast, Davos witnessed the Azor High ceremony at the beach, got ripped by his sons, and met Salador San for a drink and the true story of Azor High. And now we're on to the synopsis for the second half of The Clash of Kings, Davos 1. Davos finishes his beer and leaves the inn to go visit his ship. Later that night, his son Devin comes down to tell him that Stannis needs him to come up to the chamber of the painted table. And while Davos is plenty proud to see Devin bedecked in the king's finest clothing, he's uneasy about this late summons. He kind of wonders if Stannis means to sail. And while Salarasan and the other captains really wanted to sail, Davos knows the long odds they face. We have no hope for victory. I said as much to Maester Crescent the day I returned to Dragonstone, and nothing has changed. We are too few. The foe's too many. If we dip our oars, we die. But he mounts his horse and takes off for Dragonstone because that's what heroes do. When Davos gets there, he sees Lord Celtigar and Valerian and a dozen knights departing, but then shit knight Axel Florent decides to hem Davos up. God, I hate this guy. Described as thick-armed and hairy all over with hair coming out of even his long ears, shit knight Axel has been Castellan on Dragonstone for 10 years. He asks if Davos thought the gods burned with a, quote, married light, and Davos, being smart, knows not to trust this guy one fucking bit. Davos just tells Axel that the gods burn brightly, which leads the shit knight to describe how sometimes people see visions of the flames, and Axel so totally saw a vision in the flames, a beautiful dancers in yellow silk dancing before Stannis. It was a so totally true vision, my man. Stannis is going to be gloriously victorious. Stannis has no taste for dancing, Davos thought. And right there, Emmett's thesis that had we gotten a Stannis POV in the Song of Ice and Fire, it would basically be a Victorian POV is proven correct. Sorry, I'm right all the time, guys. Ugh. 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 
Davos says he only saw fire and smoke, but he needs to go see Stannis. He wonders why Axel had stopped him, given that Davos was a king's man, but he pushes these thoughts aside as he goes on to Stannis. He finds the king at the painted table with Maester Pylos at his side with papers next to him. Sir, the king said when Davos entered. Come have a look at this letter. Obediently, as always, Davos selected a paper at random. It looks handsome enough, your grace, but I fear I cannot read the words. You see, Davos is illiterate. I feel your pain, man. Sure, he knew how to read a map, but reading books is for commies. Still, his three youngest boys could read. Irritated, as he always is, Stannis orders Pylos to read the letter, and Pylos picks up the paper to read. All men know me for the true-born son of Stefan Baratheon, Lord of Storm's End by his lady wife, Kassana of House Estramon. I declare upon the honor of my house that my beloved brother Robert, our late king, left no true-born issue of his body. The boy Joffrey, the boy Tommen, and the girl Marcella being abominations born of incest between Cersei Lannister and her brother Jaime the Kingslayer. By right of birth and blood, I do this day declare claim on the Iron Throne of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros. Let all true men declare the loyalty. Done in the light of the Lord, under the sign and seal of Stannis of House Baratheon, the first of his name, King of the Endos, the Roynar, and the first men, and the Lord of the Seven Kingdoms. Stannis, though, well, he's a good editor, and he's got some edits. Make it Sir Jamie, the Kingslayer henceforth, Stannis said, frowning. Whatever else the man may be, he might, he remains a knight. I don't know that we ought to call Robert my beloved brother either. He loved me no more than he had to, nor I him. Okay, sure, Stannis, you're just Mr. Duty loving Robert just as much as he loved you, not caring about the amount of love you received from Robert. Sure. Pilo says, you know, just go with the flow, man, but it's a lie to Stannis. Take it out. And they need to make at least 117 copies of this to mount on ravens they'll send to every corner of Westeros. Actually, they need more letters. Davos is to go sailing north for Goldtown, the Fingers, the Three Sisters, maybe even to White Harbor. And Dale, his son, will go to the Dorn, will go to Dorn and the Arbor. All these letters need to get nailed to every door of every sept. Davos objects, saying that few people will read the letters, and Pylos agrees, saying they really need to have these letters read, read aloud. Sans, though, thinks that this will be dangerous for his men and doesn't want to needlessly endanger them. Well, then send some knights to read them, Davos and Pylos urge. And Stannis agrees. He orders Davos to use his smuggler's tricks to get in and out of areas quick, quickly, and if he runs out of letters, go capture some septums to make some more copies. I don't know, I find that funny. And Davos' his second son is to take the letters to Bravos and the free cities to give to the rulers of those cities too. They will know my claim and of Cersei's infamy. You could tell them, Davos thought. But will they believe? Stannis realizes that Davos is holding something back and tells Tylos to get lost and writing, leaving Stannis and Davos alone. And Stannis, well, he's got a question for Davos. What is it you would not say in the presence of my maester Davos? Well, Davos is a bit concerned. He, he likes Pylos well enough, but he still mourns for Crescent. Stannis thunders that it wasn't Pylos' fault that Crescent died. He didn't even want Crescent to come to the feast. And yeah, sure, Stannis was angry at Crescent, at everything and everyone, but he didn't want Crescent to die. He wanted to um give Crescent some years to rest and relax. Is that accurate, Stannis? Whatever. Pylos serves him ably now. Yeah, all well and good, but what did your lord's betterman make of the letter? Stannis snorted. <laughs> Celticard pronounced it admirable. If I showed him the contents of my privy, he would declare that admirable as well. The others bobbed their heads up and down like a flock of geese. All but Valarian, who said the steel would decide the matter, not words on a parchment, as if I had never suspected. The others take my lords. I'll hear your views. Okay, I'm back to loving Stannis again after that miserable business with Crescent from the prologue. Davos says that Stannis' words are blunt, strong, and true, but Stannis, my man, you have no proof of this incest you claim. Oh, but Stannis does have proof in the form of Edric Storm, a.k.a. Robert's Bastard. He was fathered on Stannis' wedding bed, and his mom is Delana Florin. He looks just like Robert. If everyone looked at Edric and looked at Joffrey and Tommen, they would definitely wonder. Yeah, but Edric, he's at Storm's End, right? Davos asks. How do you solve that problem? Stannis says it's a difficulty, one of many, of course. And Davos, if you have more to say about the letter, spit it out. 
Stannis didn't make Davos a knight to mouth, to quote, mouth empty courtesies. Gotta love that. I always try to clutch my jaw when I do the Stannis lines. He's got lords for that. Okay, well, Stannis, um, that, uh, quote, done in the Lord of Light business, yeah, that's a bit much, man. Maybe go for done in the sight of gods and men or by the grace of the gods, old and new. That, that sounds a lot better. People aren't going to be pissed about that. Stannis wonders if Davos has gone devout, and Davos has the same question for Stannis. Stannis knows that Davos doesn't love her Laura Pylos. Well, it's not quite that, Davos says very, very carefully. He doesn't really know this Lord of Light, but he knows the Seven. They helped him sail the seas and give birth to his children. Your wife has given you seven strong sons. Do you pray for her? It was wood we burned this morning. That may be so, Davos said. But when I was a boy in Flea Bottom begging for a copper, sometimes the Septons would feed me. I feed you now. Yes, yes, of course, your grace. You feed Davos now, and Davos returns the favor by giving Stannis truth. The people aren't going to love Stannis if he goes around insulting their gods, or, you know, fucking burning them, and they'll love Stannis less for some foreign god whose name they can't even pronounce. All right, Frank, here's your time. Time to shine. Give us the the monologue that you've been so wanting to do this entire time you've come on the Not A Cast podcast. Take us away. Interrupt my synopsis. Do your thing. It is for me that I do this. Stannis stood abruptly. Relore, why is that so hard? They will not love me, you say? When have they ever loved me? How can I lose something I have never owned? Stannis moved to the south window to gaze out at the moonlit sea. I stopped believing in gods the day I saw the wind proud break up across the bay. Any god so monstrous as drown my mother and father would never have my worship, I vowed. In King's Landing, the High Septon would prattle at me if all justice and goodness flowed from the Seven. But all I ever saw of either was made by men. Okay, Frank, that was pretty good. I'll give you that. Very, very good. Little golf clap here. Okay, that begs the question, though. If, Stannis, you're so much of an atheist, why are you bothering with R'hllor? Good question. Stannis doesn't care or love any god, but Melisandre's got real power, man. Davos wonders what kind of power Melisandre possesses, and he interjects that Crescent had wisdom. Stannis, grinding his teeth as always, says that Crescent's wisdom did fuck all. No one gave a shit when Davos went begging to the Stormlords for their support. They laughed at Stannis' claim. Well, no one's going to be begging or laughing now. The Iron Throne is mine by rights, but how am I to take it? There are four kings in the realm, and three of them have more men and more gold than I do. I have ships, and I have her, the Red Woman. Stannis says that half of hashtag Team Stannis is scared shitless of, of Melisandre, so scared that they won't even say her name. But that inspiration of fear is powerful, according to Stannis. A frightened man is a beaten man. And maybe Melisandre can do more for hashtag Team Stannis. All right, Abbott, your turn. You spotlight's on you, buddy. Take us to the end. When I was a lad, I found an injured ghost shock and nursed her back to health. Proudwing, I named her. She would perch on my shoulder and flutter from room to room after me and take food from my hand, but she would not soar. Time and again, I would take her hawking, but she never flew higher than treetops. Robert called her Weakwing. He owned a falcon named Thunderclap who never missed her strike. One day, our great uncle Sir Harbor told me to try a different bird. I was making a fool of myself with Proudwing, he said, and he was right. Stannis Baratheon turned away from the window, and the ghosts who moved upon the southern sea. The Seven have never brought me so much as a sparrow. It is time I tried another hawk, Davos. A red hawk. Oh, so good, man. Yeah, maybe you should be doing the synopsis from here on out. Excellent, excellent, excellent work. Both you gentlemen did fine, fine work here. And guess who also did fine work? George R.R. fucking Martin. What an amazing chapter, because that is a Clash of Kings Davos one. Wowie wow. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. This is why I love A Song of Ice and Fire. This chapter, this POV, this is magnificent shit. What did you all gentlemen think? 
Well, I think you did a great job, Jeff, as long as we're going around praising each other. You know, reading this scene is, is like spending an hour with a perfectly painted portrait. You got King Stannis Baratheon, letter exposing the secret hidden throughout Book 1 in his hand, his embodied conscience Davos at his shoulder, painted table of his kingdom at his back, his eyes on the ghosts moving on the southern sea, and then he turns away from them to cast his heart into the fire. Every detail is so finely observed, the politics of the letter reflect the characterization, and the character backstory informs the big picture decisions. It's all layered together perfectly, like Valyrian steel. You might convince me that there are better written chapters in Aeswaf. Danny 10 in Dance, for example. And I need no convincing there are chapters more important to the series as a cultural event. Ned's death in Arya 5 from Book 1, The Red Wedding and Storm. And there are chapters that are more emotionally poignant or fraught for me. Brienne on the Quiet Isle in Feast, for example, reduces me to a blubbering mess every time. But Davos 1, A Clash of Kings... This right here is my favorite chapter in all of fiction. If this chapter were just about Davos and the parts we covered last week during his introduction, his doubts, his loyalty, his family relationships, all he hopes for them, him watching Melisandre doing her stuff and worrying that that will put his family in jeopardy, it'd easily be a top five chapter in the series for me. But then what we have here... Stannis seeking Davos' counsel, sending his son to do it. Stannis explaining himself to Davos. Stannis opening himself up to Davos about, about both Proudwing, Emmett's feathery baby for this year chapter, and the Wind Proud for me. And well, here we are with me practically bouncing in my seat with unrestrained glee. Everything you need to know about Stannis Baratheon from now until the end of the series, I'd argue, is all right here. But why does that matter? I mean, Stannis is going to eat it against the Boltons, the wrong say, covered in filth, or against the others, the wise men say, garbed in togas of light. <laughs> to borrow one of Emmett's favorite lines, men's lives have meaning, not their deaths. Second, it matters because Stannis is so utterly compelling in his own right. But even if you loathe Stannis as a character, First off, make your way to the pyre, please. <laughs> he still matters for the story at large from both the meta and in-universe side. The latter can and will be explained both in this episode and by Gemmet as the story progresses. For the meta side, he is, as many have pointed out, very similar to our two main endgame characters, Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen, in both characteristics, and Mel makes this explicit regarding Jon and Dance, and in many other major plot points, the connections to lore, the military victories, and ultimately what they mean for those coming to the... Danny is going to judge Aegon VI, and Stannis is there to judge the Boltons. There's many overlaps. But I also want to shout out Geoff. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. His Twitter is at the goggles do. But many people, including him, have pointed out these similarities between Stannis, John, and Danny. But he goes further, quite, and he argues quite persuasively that not only is Stannis similar to John and Danny, but that Stannis represents Martin's trial run for John and Danny. In other words, how close can you write someone to the abyss before the audience bails on that character entirely? And despite the protests of people who think we should have abandoned Stannis a long time ago, I think Martin has done the best tightrope work of the entire series with Stannis. And if you want to understand how that's going, you come right here to Dragonstone, to the painted table, and Stannis finally bearing that hole in his chest to the man he most admires in the world, Davos Seaworth.
So like in the past few episodes on Catelyn Tyrion, you know, I've kind of talked about it. each of them have a pragmatic worldview in achieving their ultimate political aims. And here I kind of want to talk about Stannis' pragmatism. You know, I've been calling Stannis the quote iron pragmatist for a few years now. And I think we see some evidence here that he has a certain flexibility, right? I mean, on the more minor side, he'll bend to Dallas and Pilus's argument about sending knights to read his proclamation aloud so as to prevent his people from getting their asses kicked, which is, I guess, some evidence for the gentler version of Stannis, which is always always in the margins since childhood. But in a more macro sense, Stannis recognizes the weakness of his cause. No, not the legal claims of the Iron Throne. That's fucking airtight. Get bent wrongs. His actual cause, Clint's and Varys' shadow on a wall idea. He's the weakest of the claimants on nearly every front at this juncture in the story. He's maybe got 5,000 soldiers cobbled together from the Narrow Sea Lords and a few minor crownlands and stormlands houses, while Renly has 100,000 swords at his back. Stannis has a large fleet, sure, but a sizable minority of the ships right now are captained by cell sales and led by Salar San, and eventually it's going to be all cell sales. He's isolated away from the center of power. So what's Stannis' answer to this predicament that he's in? It's two parts, I think. I believe we can all agree that Stannis' story about Proudwing and his abandonment of the Faith of the Seven are powerful emotive character points that illuminate the sad interiority of King Stannis Baratheon, and I'm going to save a lot of my thoughts for that specific story later on, but I think we're also seeing Stannis' pragmatism at work in his religious expression. He'll take on the Red Hawk because it has real power, power that the Faith won't afford him in his quest to take the Iron Throne. But before Stannis tells the story of the Windproud and Proudwing, he'll declare his kingship in quite pragmatic lenses, via a letter. Yes, that's where we start in this second half of the chapter, with Davos answering his king's summons, going to the chamber of the painted table, and reviewing Stannis' letter in which he declares himself king. And if, if the Lightbringer ceremony on the beach represents the mask that Stannis feels he must wear, but he was pretty visibly uncomfortable with it, his open letter to Westeros represents the man he is down to the bones. And back we go to that essential ambiguity, the defining trait of Stannis' character as being a hero and villain sharing the same skin. As this announcement represents both the best and worst in Stannis. In terms of the best, it's a public declaration of what has led the realm to this state of misrule and war, and it offers a remedy rooted in truth, law, and collective assertion of the same. His blunt, no-frills approach in the letter is his way of getting at the unvarnished truth, which is a rare and prized commodity when the continent is drowning in bullshit. Stannis is not simply demanding homage, but asking everyone to bear witness to a treasonous crime committed at the highest levels of government. As he tells Davos, now no one can claim ignorance. Tell the truth and shame the devil, let the pieces fall where they may. The singers may do as they like, as he says in the Storm of Swords. After all, Stannis, who is up his own ass about a lot of things is not exactly up his own ass about the likely consequences, or lack thereof, of his letter among the nobility. He knows that, quote, these great lords love Joffrey, or Renly, or Robb Stark. It is not enough, it will never be enough. That's why he needs Davos, his one peasant friend, to deliver his message to the people at large, so they too can know and choose for themselves. But that's quite forward thinking, really. No one else is doing that, cutting past the hierarchy of the lords and the maesters, for that matter, to communicate directly with the illiterate majority. And the letter itself also focus focuses on... Public knowledge and recognition, all men know me for the true-born son of Stefan Baratheon and Cassana Estermont. I think this is a side of Stannis that is not quite as navel-gazing as his rep suggests. This is someone who knows that he needs the realm on his side, that it matters what the people think, all the people. He knows that power resides where men believe it resides. That's exactly what he says about Melisandre at the end of this chapter, that she has this power of getting people to be afraid of her and believe in her power. But that brings <laughs> us to the worst in him. When this doesn't work, when some folks believe the letter but others don't, and there's no mass movement to Stannis' side, he goes, fine, fuck it, shadow demon. I am a, read smudge note on hand, Azora High now. 
like, if the truth on its own won't defeat the lies and make Stannis king, he will turn to apocalyptic religious fear, the scariest shadow he can cast on the wall of power. Where he lands is, if they won't follow the rules, why should I? And I, I do sympathize with the emotions behind that, given Stannis' career of following the rules. That is ultimately an immature and unworthy drive in a leader. When he talks about how there's going to be no begging and no laughing to Davos near the end of this chapter, he sounds an awful lot like Viserys in Book 1, talking about what's going to happen when he gets back to Westeros, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, Viserys is a good one for the no more begging with Viserys beggar king moniker, but there's nobody else we know who can't stand the sound of laughter. I mean, there's nobody. It can't be. Surely, surely there's no connection between his grace, Stannis Baratheon, and that loathsome war criminal Tywin Lannister, right? I mean, there's that important moment in Storm when Stannis talks about being a kid and going to court with Robert and how impressive Aerys Targaryen was, and then later Stefan tells him, no, that was Tywin Lannister that you were so impressed by. There are supposed to be these connections between Stannis and Tywin, but there are several differences. One of the main ones is that Tywin doesn't have a Davos. Tywin doesn't have an externalized conscience. Joanna maybe kind of seemed to have been that role from what we gather, but the closest Tywin has to a confidant now is Kevon, who was a toady. And, you know, certainly is not the cruelest Lannister, but there's no indication he was ever going to tell Tywin he was wrong in the way that Davos is willing to tell Stannis that he's wrong. Davos guides Stannis into port. That's the heart of their relationship. And again, it's, it's, it's two-sided and somewhat ambiguous. Like, you could make a case that this dynamic between Stannis and Davos in this chapter is very dry and procedural, that it's built around ideas and arguments rather than emotions. Like, my favorite example is their reunion after the Battle of Blackwater in A Storm of Swords Davos 4, where Stannis immediately launches Davos into yet another thorny debate about treason, <laughs> as though Storm's End was yesterday, and says nothing about Davos' dead sons. But, on the other hand, you could also argue that this is a passionate bond forged in blood, that it's a frighteningly intense relationship, maybe a little too intense. Like, that's what Salador <laughs> was kind of saying to Davos last time, that... You know, his argument, which was, was subtext in this chapter, and it becomes text when they part in a dance with dragons, and that is that Davos's dedication to his king has become all-consuming. It's a virtue that is transforming into a vice. Too much light has hurt Davos's eyes, and Sal is telling. Those, those finger bones are an anchor. They're a noose around his neck. Like, it's no accident that Davos has seven sons, and his arc begins by him watching the seven burn, as four of them will in the Blackwater. Uh, Beric will say in Storm, fire consumes, and there is nothing left. But, you know, before we get to any of that, we have Davos evaluating his king's claim in this chapter. And I love how just precise their first interaction is. The first Stannis-Davos interaction it establishes their relationship perfectly. Stannis tells Davos to look at the letter. And so Davos grabs a piece of paper and looks at it, even though he can't read it. And he could have just said so. He could have just said, your grace, I can't read. But he has to grab the piece of paper and look at it first, because otherwise he's disobeying a direct <laughs> order. And that just perfectly captures, like, the, the intimacy and awkwardness inherent to their dynamic. Because theirs is the only relationship that works the way Stannis' worldview says it should. Like, there is an undercurrent of gratitude and respect running through all their scenes. Stannis' understanding of Davos as the one good man in Westeros, the one true vassal. And that involves not just obedience, but honesty. Like, Stannis knows that he can't count on the rest of his lords to give him blunt opinions worth a damn. And this is classic Stannis in that he is backing his way into a forward-thinking take. Like, he's cutting through the boundaries of class, but not so much because he's directly trying to raise up the peasants like his fellow Azor High figure Beric Dondarrion. It's more because he despises his own class and enjoys pissing them off. As he says to Davos in uh, Storm's End, someday I may make you a lord if only to piss off the, the nobleborn. And that, of course, is in direct pointed contrast to the prom kings of Westeros, Robert and Renly. 
this kind of weird ass conversation between Davos and Sir Axel Florin about what this what Sir Shit Knight sees in the flames and how he's watching Davos. Like it's very clear it's 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 intended as a threat, and Davos is just is just not sure what to make of, of this Sir Axel Florin character. And I think this helps illuminate the duality of Stannis. He raises smugglers high, and he also raises Shit Knights pretty high too. I mean, basically, Axel Florin is is Stannis's master whispers, for lack of a better term. There's this certain duality in the way that Stannis interacts with the world, and both he is evaluating people, seeing their respective strengths and weaknesses. But also, he is kind of lifting people up, and sometimes those people aren't worth being lifted up, like your Axel Florence in the world, other characters he's going to, uh, we're going to meet later on in the story, like Sir Emery Florence, Axel's, I think, uncle, right? If you were going to make the, the single best argument against Stannis, I think it, even more than burning people, it's it's Clayton Suggs. Because Clayton enjoys torture in a way that even I don't think Melisandre enjoys her burnings. I mean, she has a religious aspect to it, but Clayton Suggs is just an absolute sadist. And Stannis willingly exploits that, as we see later on. As you say, Emmett, uh, this letter is significant not just for its uses as an analytical tool for the Davos-Stannis relationship, but for its implications for a, the key moment of that relationship Davos puts his life on the line by saving Edric and telling Stannis his duty to protect his people. He's not raising them up like Beric, but the fact that he has an that Stannis has an almost idealized notion of the feudal system. He won't raise them up, but he's going to do right by them within that system. This letter is a very early recognition by Stannis that he is king of all of the people of Westeros, even those who can't read, who don't have castles, and aren't quote-unquote, worthy of a maester. But right now, he's doing, as we'll discuss later, what the regular non-Stannis nobles of Westeros do. He's attempting to only impose obligations upon the people hearing the words of this letter with no reciprocal duties back on them. He doesn't offer them anything in return for this. He points out the problems of the court and then says, that makes me your king, so obey me. He doesn't say, I'm going to clean out this corruption and do that. He doesn't have a campaign statement because, again, as we've talked about, he's a shitty politician, which is why he hates so very much the people who are good at this. He hates that Robert can bring fallen foes over to him. He hates that Renly can go to a feast and make people love him because he sucks at this. But Davos ultimately helps Stannis elevate to what he should be. And then in Storm, he says, they are your subjects, and that means you are just as bound to them as they are to you. And you can prove it by acting for them even before they act for you. Those are great points, and Davos convinces him in that kind of legalistic, principled way. But as you say, he lacks the personal touch. He lacks the ability to walk into the room and make everyone love him. He can do that with a handful of people. There are a handful of extreme personalities like Davos that gravitate to someone like Stannis, but they are rare cases. The Mountain Clansmen. The Mountain Clansmen, exactly. The, who I think are really the only kind of, of Northmen who would particularly be up for marching with <laughs> Stannis. And John probably knew that when he sent Stannis to recruit them. But that doesn't mean Stannis necessarily likes rubbing elbows with anyone. Is As soon as Davos irks him in this chapter and elsewhere, he promptly starts calling him smuggler as an insult, as an epithet, just to remind you, hey, you're dependent on me. You were not born to this life, and I have not forgotten about that. On the other hand, he does forget that Davos can't read, which is, I guess, kind of a compliment in that he doesn't think Davos as different from the rest of the lords, but also kind of insulting that he's forgetting Davos as a person, forgetting his backstory, forgetting that this is the one man hasn't read, and Stannis has never seemed to take an interest in him reading. So while we get this core of justice, to borrow Stephen Atwell's phrasing, to Stannis Baratheon, everything he's built on top of it, everything he's allowed to calcify, is getting in the way. 
Like, yes, Stannis brings Davos into the room to not kiss up, specifically to hear criticisms of his letter because he knew he wasn't going to get them from his, his other lords. He wasn't going to get useful criticisms. He was going to get either people telling him it was great or people telling him that Steel would decide that neither of those is helpful. So that's good that he's bringing in Davos, but he doesn't actually heed those criticisms. That's the downfall <laughs> here. That's the, that's the flip side of the, that duality coin. And that becomes the linchpin for how Tyrion and the small council are able to combat Stannis's propaganda with their own tale of propaganda of Stannis bringing over a foreign god of... And then you have the little finger inventing the story between Selyse and Patchface, which is all sorts of ugly and terrible and horrifying, which we'll get to in a later Tyrion chapter. I think there's something that you could take from their relationship here that Davos gets Stannis to dismiss Pylos with a look. Yeah, Pylos is new there, but he's I think he'd been on Dragonstone for two years, so he's not exactly a new face. So perhaps I'm reading too much into this, but I think this says a lot about the relationship. This shows that Stannis first trusts Davos not just to speak with him and criticize his letter, but to speak with him alone. Access to the king is a huge currency in these societies. Access to the king in private is another. And second, Stannis is clearly paying attention to Davos. He's not doing a frequent sin of my own where he's not listening, but he's just waiting for your turn to talk. Stannis is focused on Davos to the point that a poignant look is enough from Davos for Stannis to wave Pylos off. It's that intimacy that Davos and Stannis know each other so well that that look is all that's needed, that Stannis picks up on it. Because again, Stannis is not emotionally literate a lot of the times and not necessarily invested in what the other person is thinking. Davos is the one big exception. It's because they know each other so well. And you make a great point that access to the king in private is a big deal. And that becomes Davos's saving grace in Storm of Swords when Axel Florent wants him dead. He can't do it because Stannis wants to see him. And Stannis will have the Onion Knight in front of him now. And that's what allows ultimately allows Davos to climb the ladder, save himself from Axel, and then save himself from Melisandre. It's important, as you say, that he's not just ignoring Davos, waving him off, that they are engaging in philosophical political debate, as they do in all five scenes they share together so far in the series. It's only five scenes for such a, a dense relationship. You get two conversations here in Clash, three in Storm. They're all that good enough to cement this relationship in our minds. And as with Tyrion and Janos Slint, as we were covering with Clint a couple weeks ago, Davos is being very lawyerly here. He's starting in calm waters, waters where they obviously agree. I miss Crescent, don't you, Stannis? There's, there's no real objection Stannis can raise to that. He tries to get angry about it and make it someone's fault because he's Stannis, but that's an area where Davos knows he can get Stannis' buy-in there. So then he can move tactfully, step by step, into the more dangerous waters of criticism where he needs to go to be of service. Something we also see in Davos' second chapter in Clash of Kings where Davos and Stannis are galloping off after meeting up with Sir Cordy Penrose. And Davos begins by saying like, oh, you're going to get justice for, for your brother, right? For Robert. He's like, yes, I will get justice for Robert. I'm sure that Cersei had a hand in his death. And then Davos accidentally lets slip. Like, so you're also going to bring justice for Renly's murder too? And which kind of brings up Stannis cold because he's like, oh, 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 no, no, no. I, we need to like have a conversation about this. I, I've, I was I was in bed this whole time, my man. Don't worry about it. I, I will I will figure out. But I will. the killer is still out there as as. O.J. Simpson once said, I'm still on the hunt for him. <laughs> exactly. Stannis is fixated on details, and most frequently the self-serving details, or the ones he can complain about to make himself feel good. Davos, like Crescent before him, is trying to focus on the big picture, which is, as Jeff said, where Stannis currently can't compete with his rivals. He has no proof of his central claim to power, namely that Cersei's kids aren't Robert's. Davos has really reason to believe in him, of course, but again, Davos is a very unique man, and Stannis kind of, you can tell, looks at Davos as like, the representative of the small folk, which is very, you know, ennobling in both senses of the word, but also just not really accurate. Davos is not most people in terms of his political views. You know, Renly and Joffrey and Rob have powerful narratives holding their coalitions together. 
So too do Danny and Mance and Beric and even Balin Greyjoy bless him. Stannis knows that. His problem isn't complete willful ignorance of the realities of power. It's that the narrative he's choosing is Melisandre's, and Davos is spooked by that decision. That's why he's objecting to the phrasing of done in the light of the Lord. It's not devotion to the Seven, as he admits. It's not even primarily dislike of Melisandre and her god, I don't think. It's his knowledge that everyone else is going to dislike this. It's Davos's more informed understanding of the cultural politics of Westeros, rooted in his position as the speaker for the small folk as far as Stannis is concerned, that allows him to say this to Stannis. You have given me an honored place at your table, and in return, I give you truth. Your people will not love you if you take from them the gods they've always worshipped and give them one whose very name sounds queer on their tongues. What he's saying there is, no one likes you, Stannis, and this will guarantee that they never will. You are already an outsider. You are making yourself an alien with this. And Stannis' rebuttal to this core objection to his claim that Frank read so well is the most Stannis thing imaginable. R'hllor. Why is that so hard? They will not love me, you say? When have they ever loved me? How can I lose something I've never owned? It's deeply relatable and also just infuriatingly short-sighted. Like, Stannis is right that a campaign rooted in getting people to like him was never going to work, even if he didn't convert to the Red God. Fear was always his more sure route to power, given his reputation. He's convinced that no one will ever love him, that his losses and rejections that we're going to talk about in a bit have left him permanently isolated from the rest of humanity, and that is tragic. But he is leaning so hard into it now. He is guaranteeing that his reputation will persist and dog his chances for the throne. This deeply held assumption that he is doomed to be hated is what led him to keep the truth about the twin cyst from Robert, which not only doomed Bobby B, it ultimately allowed Renly to steal Stannis' thunder and declare himself king first. It's self-fulfilling self-sabotage. And Davos, as the man who believes in the best in Stannis, is trying to drag him away from the edge and make him a king worth following. But you can see Stannis being like, aggressively materialist, and even more so, like, literal-minded in this conversation. Like, his comment about how they were only burning wood, and about how he feeds Davos now, not the priests. And, like, you know, when Davos says, the, the very name sounds queer in their tongues, and he says, Willor, that's how you pronounce it. It's like, that's not the point, buddy. <laughs> it's not that you have to go around teaching everyone, like, this, like, you know, class about the syllables. It's that it's this, this outside influence, and you're ignoring Davos's deeper deeper implications here. The irony, though, is that Stannis is going to switch to a metaphor, which, of course, is not complex, of course, but still, it's a metaphor to describe his conversion to R'hllor after being extremely literal about how to pronounce the word R'hllor. It's not so hard to say, guys. Come on. You guys are just like throwing up all this stuff. But let me tell you this this metaphor about why I am following R'hllor now after going very, very literal there. And I think like you're, you're, you're hitting on something that's really powerful about Stannis as a character that ultimately makes him doomed ultimately i think because he's not able to ascertain or gain the love of the people around him and the people from of westeros and the, the lures of westeros in particular but he's also not presenting a different pathway a, a different way forward right he's not saying like well here's what i'm actually going to do to gain their love or gain their loyalty or gain their respect until davos presents him a plan in a storm of swords which is save the kingdom to win a throne and i think that's that's extremely poignant for stance's characterization because i think you're right like it is very relatable that like yeah nobody's ever loved me so why would i ever care about what about people's love so this is what i'm going to do but at the same time it's like ultimately like stance like come up with some sort of like ideology or some sort of way that you're going to gain the favor of the people. It's not like the High Sparrow is a particularly warm and cuddly guy, as we find in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, but he gains a whole lot of followership because of his message that he's presenting to the people of Westeros. So Stannis, take a page from the High Sparrow and become someone who is worth following from the people of Westeros. 
And the High Sparrow is a great comparison because he's going all in on a religious transformation. And Stannis is attempting a religious transformation without wanting to acknowledge what a big deal it is. <laughs> That's the contradiction here. Like, he's signing his name in the, in the light of the Lord, but isn't willing to admit that Davos is right and this is a big change. Because he has doubts, and he's half-assing it, and it shows, as we were saying about the ceremony on the beach. Where he lands, I think, is agreeing with, with what Davos said to Salador. King Stannis is your god. His red hawk is just an instrument in service of that cause, like Davos himself. That's what matters. That's the source of power and meaning and war. Who cares which fake face on a painted statue Stannis prays to before he deals with all of that? There's an element of hypocrisy in, in his narrative here, because look at what he what Davos says about the priests. When I was hungry, they'd give me a copper and they'd be able to feed you. And so that's a literal like if he wants to be literal minded about what are the benefits of religion, that's Davos's example. Like Stannis says, the seven have never brought me so much as a sparrow. OK, but when Davos was hungry, they brought him a copper. So if he's trying to do this, if his rejection of the seven is rooted in no material benefits, then his letter and him doing in this light of the seven, he should probably have like, I don't know, a couple lines about how the seven haven't done you much. And that's why I'm doing this. Like he has no articulating principle beyond that and he's like i feed you now davis and he's like okay but what are you gonna do in replace of the seven who are at this moment despite being very corrupt and you know martin's unworked you know trauma from his from being wrapped on the knuckles by nuns i assume is that they're still doing things they are still feeding people they are still helping people which is why there's such a backlash by the sparrows and stannis has no replacement plan he just wants to like a lot of revolutionaries in history blow it up with no replacement and that will get him in a ton of trouble and these contradictions we're talking about open him up to the question davos poses the question that kind of pries open stannis's crab lobster shell if you do not believe in gods why trouble with this new one and so then we get to the backstory explanation the, the spotlight switches to stannis and he monologues here at last we have arrived at the point of all this emotionally speaking the explanation of how Stannis got this way and what we, the flawed, incomplete people reading the book who will forever search to be whole, can take away from it. And this, we got to turn it over to, to Frank, especially on this count, because I know the, the wind proud is his favorite part of the story. As I said out of the synopsis, I think if you want to understand Stannis Baratheon as both a character and his purpose in ASWF, the wind proud, both as event and how Stannis recollects it to Davos... This is the cornerstone. I argued that it is just as, if not more, important than the Siege of Storm's End because it's really what puts Stannis on the path to Storm's End. And it's only like a line and a half. It's only four lines in the paperback. But there are three issues that I think form the triumvirate of issues on the Wind Proud that I want to explore. The first is the issue of trauma. The Wind Proud represents an enormously traumatic event and kind of gets papered over by fans when discussing Stannis. And for good reason, because Stannis himself has papered over that trauma and buried it deep beneath an exterior of an Iron Man, strong, able, and just. And I'm sure all of us have either been or know someone who has faced a traumatic situation and thrown themselves into their work rather than face it. For just one example, Stannis is said to know the strengths of every house in Westeros. Think how long that would take you, listener, sitting right here with every single Song of Ice and Fire book and the internet at your fingertips. Stannis has done it in a largely illiterate society using birds. Because if he focuses on figuring out just how many troops some Dune Prince in Dorne has, well then maybe he won't hear the snap of a wooden mast in the churning sea that has become his memory, threatening to drag him down at any moment. 
In keeping with Emmett's entirely accurate, thanks I hate it, comparisons of Stannis to the Greyjoys, this is Stannis' Aeron. Fitting in that Stannis' flagship Fury destroys Aeron's Golden Storm at the Battle of Fair Isle and begins Aeron on the path to becoming the Damp Hair. Aeron uses religion to drown, almost literally, his trauma at the hands of Euron. Stannis drowns his trauma of his parents' deaths in his work, his role as the dutiful younger brother to Robert, and his rejection of the Seven. Further, you guys in earlier episodes, and especially in Chloe and Eliana from the Girls Gone Canon podcast, they did a magnificent job in their first Ned episode, Ned episode, talking about how Ned and Robert haven't really dealt with their trauma from Robert's Rebellion. Then, in their second Ned episode, they say how Robert is frozen in time from his own trauma, both from the Windproud, because he was there as well, and the Rebellion. And so he's an exuberant, irresponsible, but gregarious frat boy jock. And Stannis is stuck in time as a moody goth. So it's not a phase, Dadbos. Leave me alone. Slams door plays Adam song. The second issue ties into that in Robert and Stannis' respective inability to grow beyond the moment of the wind proud and what that does to their relationship. How well is a moody goth going to get along with Robert of all people? Well, you've got the Nauticast, but those guys are weird. But it turns out it'll, Robert will work great with a moody goth. Ned just does fine. And it could be something as simple as what you hate in your family you like in your friends. But my argument is that there's something more. There was probably a chance for a healthy relationship between Stannis and Robert after this, if Robert had ever given him his due, you know, like ever, but especially after Storm's End. But Robert associates Stannis too much with the trauma of watching the Wind Proud break up in Shipbreaker Bay. This is not explicit, but what do we know about Robert? If he can't drink, eat, fuck, or fight it, it bored him. And it's understandable and, you know, relatable, but it's not commendable. But more than that, even his Robert's best friend Ned recognizes that Robert oft closes his eyes to problems he can't solve with his warhammer or his dick. So Robert buries his trauma and doesn't want to remember, let alone process this painful event. And Stannis, much like Jon Snow is for Catelyn, Stannis is a walking, talking reminder for Robert of that event which he cannot process. So I think it's a reasonable inference to draw that the wind proud really was just further poisoning an already fraught relationship. And you also have the fact that Stefan and Kasana are not there to help Stannis move past the fact that he can't be better than Robert. Stefan can't take Stannis aside and say, look, it doesn't matter that you're not as good at hawking as Robert. You have a lot of great qualities on your own, but he's not there to do it. So you combine that with their ages, that Stannis was 13 when this happened, Robert is 14, Renly was an infant, and boy, does that age gap put things in perspective. You're already showing the vast gulf of personalities, which means this relationship was already kind of doomed from the start with dire consequences for the realm. That's great stuff, man. I loved it. And yeah, Girls Gone Canon did such a great job covering Ned and Robert's emotional kind of fragility and stagnation. And this is something we touched on, touched on a lot in the Game of Thrones, too, especially with Ned and Robert. How the Rebellion generation is, is stunted in their growth, that they're drawn back like boats in the current to these traumatic moments that made them who they are now. We're going to see that later in the series play out in various ways with Jamie and Barbary and John Connington and so on. And this inevitably factors into how they shape the next generation, as we'll see with John Con projecting just so much onto young Griff. But it's also this poisoned inheritance, this poisoned gift from the previous generations. You know, Southron ambitions, that coalition moved this generation around like pieces on a board. And they all suffered for it. Stannis was is transformed by the loss of his parents on a mission, which was probably in service of that same game. You know, Stan, uh, Stefan and Cassandra going out to try to find another bride for Rhaegar and Essos. And 
Several people have theorized, and it might be true, that this is because they failed to produce such a bride with Renly. Maybe that they were trying to have that third kid and there was such a gap because they were trying to produce a Valyrian-blooded bride. And then they didn't get it, so they had to go find one, and they went down. Back and back and back it goes, as on pu- puppets on strings, as Tyrion says in Storm. And yeah, this is where Stan- Stannis' alienation from humanity, and his own class in particular, comes from. Because he saw his parents sacrificed on the altar of the Game of Thrones. And this establishes how deep his connections to others once ran. He clearly loved his parents more than anyone, so much so that the loss of them completely changed his worldview. And that change in worldview is is the third issue that I kind of want to touch on from the Windproud. And the worldview that Stannis adopts centers around notions of justice and duty. Does he always meet those? Of course not. Few people meet their overriding principles. Pride and envy, as Emmett has said and will expound upon later, can and do prevent Stannis from reaching those heights. But those justice and duty remain his goals. And it's here it's worth repeating the two lines I'm referring to, if for no other reason than I love them so much. I stopped believing gods the day I saw the wind proud break up across the bay. Any god so monstrous as to drown my mother and father would never have my worship, I vowed. And many have taken this line as an indication that Stannis is an atheist, and I do think that's a fair inference to draw, and regardless of what term we apply to his belief structure, it's very relevant for how Stannis views Mel, how Mel has to work on him to move him towards his Nisa Nisa moment, and fully become the Azor Ahai she believes him to be. But I don't think he's an atheist. Note he uses the word any. He doesn't say there could not possibly be gods so monstrous. He says any gods so monstrous. So the gods might exist, but if so, they're dicks. And as we talked about with the noble class compared to Davos last week, the gods are just bad at their jobs. They're bad at justice. And therefore, Stannis owes them no duty. Because for Stannis, justice flows from interlocking relationships of duty. And it's almost a a platonic ideal of feudalism for Stannis. And for Stannis, justice apparently cannot come from gods. In King's Landing, the High Septon would prattle at me of how all justice and goodness flowed from the Seven. But all I ever saw of either was made by men. And thus, it's my job, Stannis says, as younger brother, as master of ships, as lord of Dragonstone, and then as king, to make justice. And it's almost Batman-esque, not to conflate two favorite characters, but Crime Alley is Shipbreaker Bay, where our character had to watch, helpless, as their parents died. Which leads to a broody, goth aesthetic. Dragonstone is a gloomy Batcave. Davos and then Jon become his respective Robins, with Jon getting Jason totted at the end of Dance with a probable Red Hood-esque violent return. But then there comes the key facet that connects these two characters, so I'm not just making a flying leap of two favorite characters. They're both obsessed with justice. They're obsessed because they're trying to force an unjust world to become just in order to make sense of the trauma that they have. This line from arguably the best Batman comic, The Dark Knight Returns, could easily come from Stannis. My parents taught me a different lesson, lying on this street, shaking in deep shock, dying for no reason at all. They showed me that the world only makes sense when you force it to. And Stannis is going to force the world to make sense, damn it. If Superman is a god pretending to be a man, and Batman is a man pretending to be a god, guess where Stannis fits? So any gods who exist and let the wind proud go down like this, or god forbid, gods forbid, caused it, So what if they exist? They are not just, and then I, Stannis, do not owe them any duty, let alone worship. This is important because Stannis believes so firmly not just in duty, but reciprocal duty. He becomes one of the few lords, along with Daenerys, Eddard, and poor damn Edmure, to view Westerosi feudalism as something more than an exploitive racket. So many nobles in Westeros view law as something that protects them but does not bind them, 
and law as something that binds the small folk but does not protect them, as we see during the War of the Five Kings. Now, obviously, as a king, and even before that, a lord, Stannis benefits and is protected by Westerosi feudalism. He's not a true Marxist revolutionary, despite how some people might want him to be. But he is one of the few nobles, again, who believes that the law binds him as a noble. And this is one of the key differences between him and Tywin. He also sees not just the protections and benefits of the feudalistic society of Westeros, but the obligations that he has, and he acts upon those obligations. Davos is an expression of that. Davos is able to pull Stannis back from the abyss of embracing his Tywin-esque impulses, the poster boy, again, for Westerosi society protecting but not binding nobles, and for Stannis not to sacrifice, for the moment, Edric Storm by appealing to that sense of duty. Quote, I know that a king protects his people, or he is no king at all, Davos tells Stannis. That is law. That is a king's primary duty. And Davos invokes it to save himself, the Night's Watch, arguably the realm, and for the moment, Stannis himself. But Martin is not just critiquing fantasy as a genre with this series. He's also critiquing us as fantasy readers. Obviously, Sansa, as you guys said back in Game of Thrones, she's a species of that. But we see Martin doing this when he shows us the opposite side of a coin for what we say we want from these kinds of novels. We say we want Theon to suffer for his role in bringing down the Starks. And, you know, I had that impulse when I read Clash. I was furious. And then, okay, what does that look like? We say we want Daenerys to enact terrible vengeance on the slavers, and we got a taste of that in Marine with the crucifixions. With Stannis, we say we want rulers who view their duty as putting the good of their subjects above themselves and no nepotistic exceptions for their family. You guys had a great talk about that with Ned. Would, you know, if it was Benjen on the chopping block, would Ned have executed him as a deserter? We don't know. But again, the fact we have that question. So Stannis does that in Sailing North. But in Winds, that very same notion of duty for even gods and kings, regardless of personal desires, means that this king is going to do a horrific act and sacrifice Shireen. Stannis can get out of sacrificing Edric Storm because he still has options. But when the others come, the cold winds rise, and the mist that's like a knife in your chest hits, all of those options will freeze. And when there's no other way, he'll do what Aemon said the one man in 10,000 would do. He'll show us what Varys, in turn described as the terror of a truly just man and try to save the realm at the cost of Shireen. And there's Martin standing next to the ashes, asking us if we like what we see. I think it's a question not of just of religion specifically, but existential quests for truth in general. Like when Stannis says that all he ever saw of goodness or justice was made by men, he's both donning his heroic mantle and sealing his villainous doom. Because on the one hand, he's taking ownership. The world is the way it is, not just because it was fated to be, because we make it that way. We powerful people make it that way. And so we have the potential to make it better, and sometimes he does. On the other hand, he's acknowledging, as he will not at Storm's End, that the blood on his hands is on his hands. And that lays bare the contradiction at the heart of his deal with R'hllor. Because yeah, I agree with Frank. At, at Stannis' core, what he wants is a fair deal, a just outcome, a world saved. But he takes the means as a given. Sacrifice is how you save the world. Murdering an innocent serves the greater good. Melisandre's vision should be taken at face value. I am Azor high. You know, he acts skeptically of these principles when Davos pokes holes in them, but he ultimately fails to interrogate them. Just as the example of the Mad King didn't prompt him to disavow the power structure he seeks to control. Yes, Stannis believes in this kind of idealized version of feudalism, but the question he can't really answer is, what do you do when the guy on top wants to burn people for fun? If all justice and goodness is supposed to flow from men, what about when the men in charge are monsters 
And when Davos throws that in his face in Storm of Swords, Stannis really kind of dances around it and acknowledges that it's a contradiction but can't really explain it. And if swapping Eros out for Robert didn't fix Westeros, why would swapping out the Seven for R'hllor? I think Stannis is, you know, he's not, Frank is right, he's not just following the crown like a bloodhound. He's trying to make sense of the world, but that often leads you to terrible places, just as often as wonderful places, and I think he ultimately ends up no closer to the truth than when he started, which is very tragic. Speaking of terrible places, so much of your guys on the Nauticast and your guests' amazing analysis here has been about the terrible places. Terrible fantasy places crafted by lesser hands, and the terrible places Martin puts his characters, and how they react to be being put into that kind of literary bind. In other words... With this series, what tropes are George reacting to when he writes, and what do the characters he writes do when the pillars and structures of their lives fall? This is explicit in A Feast for Crows, but we see a lot of it in Robert's Rebellion and then all through the books. So, for example, when the songs fail Littlefinger, he becomes a jobless prick with a pedophilic trick. When those same songs fail Sansa, she becomes even more determined that she'll make the people love me. But but she's not saying, I'm going to make them love me like Stockholm Syndrome, or we're going to do like a love potion. What she's really saying there, but because she's a child, she doesn't know the proper verbiage. She says, I'm going to be worthy of that love. And this gets to, you know, kind of another point on the Windproud. What does Stannis do in reaction to the Windproud and the other pillars of his life failing? When the pillars of his life fail, first his parents, and then Robert, even before the former's death, Stannis, as I said, he decides that justice out of duty is the central pillar he will rebuild his life around. Stannis has, as we've talked about, as as Emmett has tried to convince so many of, Stannis has a fragile core at heart after years of neglect from Robert and really everyone else except for Crescent. And he has become convinced that not only is he unlovable, but that people are right to not love him, as Emmett said. The duty of his supporters and the realm to him and his duty in turn to them is how he will shield that fragile core, wrapping it in iron. But how can he have such a loyal following, both Davos and Universe, and amongst the fandom for such a fragile, blatantly, if not aggressively flawed character? It is in this world of decidedly one-sided duties imposed by the nobles upon everyone else, often with the cruelest of means, that we fly Stannis' banner. Atop those walls of reciprocal duty, we loyal Stannermen proudly plant the flags of not only Stannis at his best, but against any character or leader at their best. Despite what Emmett said last week, that the best stuff Stannis does is because Davos tells him to, Stannis had the proud wing before Davos. He held Storm's End before Davos' arrival. Stannis works against the slow-motion Lannister coup without Davos. Stannis listens to Jon without Davos. He recruits the Mountain Clans without him. He marches on Winterfell without Davos. And he's going to utterly stomp the Boltons without him. Hell, even the best moment of Stannis, rejecting Claw Isle, not just tactically, but morally, the text shows us that Stannis was probably going to reject that plan even before Davos gives his take on it. Quote, Battle will set their hearts ablaze once more, your grace, Sir Axel said. Defeat is a disease, and victory is the cure. Victory, the king's mouth twisted. There are victories and victories, sir. But tell your plan to Sir Davos. I would hear his views on what you propose. And then Stannis names Davos his hand because Davos's take lines up with Stannis's own. If Davos had given the wrong take, he wouldn't be hand. But even if Emmett, or you, listener, truly believe that Stannis's only good works are done with Davos' say-so and you're not just trolling then Stannis lifting Davos up is still Stannis' choice. No matter how you spin it, there is Stannis is, an implacable beacon fire of justice in a truly unjust world. But just as those are Stannis' finest acts, and justice is Stannis' greatest virtue, so too does Martin's best work come when the brightest flames of his characters cast the longest shadows. 
And so by the time Winds ends, we will look around at the flags the castle Stannis has built out of duty, all his proud accomplishments streaming in the wind. But then there's a sharp, cold bite to the wind, like a knife in our chests. And only then will we see that Stannis' fortress is made of wood, hollow, with a hole that cannot be filled in time, just like our doomed sovereign. And now winter has come, and the wood won't keep the cold out, as the stone of the Starks can and will. And only then will we look at the wooden ramparts Stannis has constructed and realize that what Stannis has built is not a mighty castle, it's a pyre. Duty won't save Stannis or Shireen. That sense of duty is the tinder upon which they burn. I think you beautifully capture the duality of Stannis right there, that it's not just that he has hero and villainous sides in him, it's that they're inextricable, that the motivations and backstory that drive him in one direction are also driving him in the other at the same time. That's what makes him such a divisive character, that's what makes him so complex and difficult to talk about. And you see that not only with the Wind Proud, but then the next layer of his backstory, the Proud Wing story. And the Proud Wing story is where Stannis just exposes his heart to the judge and jury. This is where George hints at his closing case for both prosecution and defense. It's interesting, we were talking earlier about the comparisons to the Greyjoys, and Stannis really is a blender of that older generation of Greyjoy men. He's got the Victorian stuff in common with the sour middle brother who hooks up with the Red Priest. He's kind of like Balin in that their introductions are very similar, sitting on their horrible islands, about to take their crowns, complaining about everybody. Frank made some great comparisons to Aeron earlier, and there's a link to Euron here, because it's just like Euron in the Reaver. Stannis is staring out a window at the sea, drawn back to childhood as he hunts for the origin story to inform this decision point. For Euron, it was the, the time he dreamed he could fly, and for Stannis, it was the moment when his bird couldn't fly. It turns out that when Stannis was a boy, he was secretly the kindest of the Baratheon brothers. He was the one who would stop and care for a wounded animal, the outcast, the one who needed him. Does it sound like a certain bastard we know who found his wolf driven off by the rest? Like, you can imagine young Stan's long, solemn face softening as Proudwing ate from his hands and fluttered to his shoulder. The Grinch's heart grew three times that day. He had found that which otherwise eludes him all his life. Love. The truth that to love and be loved is all there is. For one shining moment he did not feel empty, he did not feel broken, and he called the bird proud. That just makes you cry. Right there is the man that Frank's talking about, the man who would lift up Davos Seaworth and tell the other lords to deal with it. If Stannis' cardinal sin is pride, along with envy, but bear with me, then proud wing represents that vice transformed briefly into a virtue, into Stannis understanding that pride is not something to be jealously hoarded. It's something to be extended to the least fortunate among us to help lift them up and think better of themselves. In this moment, Stannis understood and embodied mercy. And then he gave it up. His love was not taken from him. He did not lose his love in a moment of carelessness. He deliberately pulled out his heart and set it on fire. Stannis doesn't finish the Proudwing story, but he heavily implies he, at best, abandoned Proudwing to die, or worse, killed the bird himself like Ned and Lady. And as with Ned and Lady, it's all because of the true protagonist of Stannis' life. Robert called her Weakwing. He owned a falcon named Thunderclap who never missed her strike. All to keep up with Robert. Anything to keep up with Robert. I'll sell my soul to be as good as my brother, to be as beloved as my brother, to get my brother to notice me. It is not enough. It has never been enough. I will never be the hero. And yet, it's not even Robert who directly pushed Stannis into the abyss regarding Proudwing. It was their great-uncle Harbert, the guy whose only other appearance in the text is when Crescent remembers how he urged a quote-unquote merciful death for Patchface. And I think this is to establish that the problem we're witnessing here goes beyond the particularly dysfunctional relationship between these two Baratheon brothers. It's an entire class, an entire society, 
that has been trained to think of proud wings as weak wings. It's a mindset that sees a creature loving and being loved and thinks only of how it can't keep up, rather than of mercy, of how to help it keep up, or just accept that it can't keep up and help anyway. As Mira says in the show, some people will always need help. That doesn't mean you shouldn't help them. And that's what Cresson said about Stannis himself in the prologue. Stannis, my lord, my sad, sullen boy, son I never had. You must not do this. Don't you know how I have cared for you, lived for you, loved you despite all? Yes, loved you, better than Robert even, or Renly, for you were the one unloved, the one who needed me most. And then Stannis passed that on to Proudwing and then turned away. It's just heartbreaking. Really is heartbreaking. But one of the things, too, I think is interesting about Proudwing. I mean, we, we can and we will talk about Proudwing as potentially the Shireen type figure, but I do kind of wonder whether it's a, a Davos type figure, too, the, the one who most of the lordly noble class of Westeros has set aside and not seen much value in. But Santa sees value in this guy, this former peasant raised to knight and eventually raised to lord in hand of the king. I, I really hope that Stannis doesn't discard his own current proud wing in the form of Davos. We do know he's likely going, he is absolutely going to discard his proud wing in the form of Shireen Baratheon. And I think that takes us to kind of an interesting discussion point, which I wanted to ask Frank about. What What is all of this about proud wing and Goshawks and all this stuff? What is that all about? Because I don't know shit about falconry in terms of medieval hunting. I didn't either. And this is a really great time to just sit back in awe of the details that Martin layers into things, which only get a few lines. Let's take, for example, just his choice of a Goshawk for Proudwing. First, the fact that it's a female. I nursed her back to help is obviously the Shireen illusion, as you mentioned. Let's look at what Goshawks are as a species, as birds of prey. I can't remember the thread, but a while back on Twitter, and I did search for it, so I apologize to the person whose stuff I'm stealing right now. Someone pointed out that Goshawks aren't soaring birds of prey. And so I remembered that for this episode, and I did some quick Wikipedia research on Goshawks, and oh boy... Goshawks don't actually soar above their prey and then come down on them with a thunderous strike, which Jir Falcons are so renowned for. Jir Falcons, they're considered royal birds in medieval history. Kings and sultans would pay exorbitant prices for them. There was a, a story of a sultan who would pay a thousand silver pieces for live falcons and would pay 500 for dead ones because he just wanted people to make the effort to get him one. But what Goshawks do is perch hunting. They coolly observe their prey and then they ambush them, which is really fitting given some of the tactics that Stannis likes to employ in his victories. But look at this line, quote, while pursuing prey, Goshawks have been described as both, quote, reckless and fearless, able to pursue their prey through nearly any conditions. And that quote is on Wikipedia, and I'm not saying Martin pulled it for there because he doesn't have a time machine that we know of. That citation on Wikipedia, it's from a book in 1986, and we are talking about things that were known in medieval times. So I can't read that description of Goshawks and honestly think Martin had a dartboard of bird species and just randomly hit on Goshawk for the man he eventually writes, quote, this is Stannis Baratheon. The man will fight to the bitter end and then some. So this is staggering and just conveys on how many levels Martin is operating on for a character that is not a POV and probably isn't making it to the endgame. But character-wise, look at what the Goshawks' hunting behavior says about Robert and Sir Harbert. They're not only being an ass to Stannis for daring to be emotionally invested in something, they're faulting Proudwing for something out of its control, against its very nature, and it thus has no reflection on Proudwing or Stannis' abilities. They're demanding Proudwing pull itself up by its bootstraps when it doesn't have any fucking boots! To bring things back to Davos, just as Jeff said, it's not difficult to conceive of Proudwing as a stand-in for Davos himself. Proudwing is the lesser that Stannis lifts up 
Robert and Great Uncle Harbor are stand-ins for the regular Westo- Restorosi nobles going, dude, what are you doing? You can't raise birds and people up like this. They're not elite. They're not one of us. Why are you even bothering? But they're saying that and they're faulting Stannis, telling him he's embarrassing himself because he can't make Proudwing soar. It's not his fault that she can't, but it doesn't matter. He keeps trying, not recognizing that he has an amazing predator, as implacable as he himself will one day become perfect for falconry. But this isn't happening in a vacuum. Succeeding at falconry isn't the point. The point is measuring up to Robert. And what happens when he can't measure up? The Democrats are trying to pass welfare reform to look tough and appease the Republicans, so squash your bleeding heart and get on board. But the Republicans, I mean the nobility, will never be appeased where Stannis <laughs> is concerned, and Robert never loved him. It was all for nothing. He gave up Proudwing for nothing, and now he is alone. Yet even with the thin wages of trying to keep up with his big brother staring him in the face, Stannis still concludes that Robert and Great Uncle Harbert were right. He turns away from the ghosts, from Proudwing and the Wind Proud, and he declares he must give up that which has made him vulnerable and weak, his heart. These formative events convince Stannis that since life is going to set your heart on fire anyway, you might as well strike the match yourself, hence his new sigil of the fiery heart. And it's tragic because we see a glimpse of who Stannis could have been, and then we see how and why he didn't go that way. Always, always, the child is the father of the man. And all of this is what leads him, as he says, to Melisandre, his red hawk with her red god. It's not just Renly stealing his armies, or the Lannisters stealing his throne, or even Ned Stark stealing Robert's brotherly love. It's all of that, but it's more. It's a conviction that nothing, nothing at all, not in his life, not in the world, nothing works like it should, and he is tired of pretending. You know, Melisandre, she comes with glamours and half-truths, and Stannis never completely trusts her, but paradoxically, he also thinks she's offering him the one true bargain. Power for power, blood for fire. There is no love for me here. Let it be fear. Yeah, if you don't see the sacrifice of Shireen coming at this point, look harder. Once more, Stannis will be left with nothing, sacrificing his heart for ash and dust. So knowing all of that, how on earth can any of us, but particularly I, possibly support such a character whose flaws almost lead him to and absolutely will lead him to burn a child alive, regardless of the ends such horrific means are directed towards? It's a monstrous crime, no matter what you're going to talk about, is your ultimate goal. So let alone, how can I support him in a way that even Leal supporters of him look at me the way Jeff and Emmett did during some of my ranting? <laughs> because Stannis knows he's going to burn, but he continues on anyway. I know the cost. Last night, gazing into that earth, I saw things in the flames as well. I saw King, a crown of fire on his brows. Burning, burning, Davos. His own crown consumed his flesh and turned him into ash. Do you think I need Melisandre to tell me what that means? Or you? Stannis believes his quest to protect the people of the Seven Kingdoms will consume him. He believes that to protect a kingdom that never loved him, didn't support him, and will leave him broken and besieged against impossible odds will turn him to ash. Doesn't matter. Try to save them anyway. And that's really one of, if not the main takeaways from A Song of Ice and Fire. Sometimes fighting against evil doesn't give you the rewards you deserve. Doesn't matter. Do it anyway. But what if your body isn't enough? Few enough characters are willing to hazard their positions in life, cough, Barristan, cough, <laughs> let alone their lives, to face down evil. We can, should, and do extol the ones who do. Serial Pharrell's last stand, Ned trying to protect Daenerys and Sansa, Yorin with his charges, Brienne at the end of the crossroads, no chance, no choice. All of them put their bodies on their line, all of them willingly use their bodies as shields. 
but how many are willing to sacrifice their souls? Stannis won't cast his body into the flames, although I think, and this is just a supposition on my part, he will propose that. And Melisandre will tell him, no, that's not how Azor Ahai Nissa Nissa works. So he's going to fling, as his banners show right here in this chapter from the moment we see him on this beach, his heart goes into the flame, his soul. Stannis is not Amon's one man in 10,000. He's the only one in this entire series who's willing to sacrifice his soul to end the coming darkness, to save people who, regardless of how understandable it is for those people, they still don't give a shit about him. The tragedy is the price he will pay to do it, and it will ultimately probably be for naught, but he doesn't know that. But the nobility comes in the attempt, and that is why he is, in spite of everything, a righteous man. I love the argument, and yet I'm like, at the same time, knowing the end state of Game of Thrones season eight and knowing that the end of the long night doesn't come as a result of sacrificing others, but it comes as a result of self-sacrifice, whether that's Bran in, in the werewood trees, whether that's John attempting to fight his way to Bran, whether that's Arya jumping out of nowhere, her no choice, no, no, no chance, no choice moment. And yes, we, we have talked extensively about that in the Not A Cast podcast about um, whether it will actually be Arya to end the long night, which we don't, we don't really think so. That it wasn't ultimately about sacrificing someone else. It was ultimately about self-sacrifice. And I think that's really vital. And I do like your point that you make about the, the theory that Stannis will offer himself first, but then Melisandre will likely point to as we talked about last week, the other endpoint in the Azor High story, the Nissa Nissa story, which is conveniently, very conveniently left out of this, the story that she tells on the beach of Dragonstone. That story is definitely coming in the Winds of Winter, and it will come when Melisandre and Stannis reunite at some point, whether it's going to be in Winterfell, whether it's going to be at some other Nightfort. place in, in Westeros. The Nightfort is, is, a, is another possible location, too. But I think ultimately Stannis's choice, and it will be Stannis's choice to sacrifice someone else is his downfall and does kind of set him almost as as a villain is that is that correct to put it at the at the end of all time as as the villain villainesque type character in the story i think that's that's kind of where i'm coming down on the argument regardless of whether the details of season eight play out the same in the books i think the broad strokes are true and it is telling that we have an azora high figure beric dondarian sacrificing himself at winterveld to stop the others now whether or not Stannis is going to think or know that that's an option is definitely up for debate when it comes to his own choice. But while I agree with Frank's overall argument about Stannis being willing to sacrifice anything, including his soul, his soul has a name. Her name is Shireen. She's an independent person from Stannis, and she is very much not getting a choice here. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that really matters. And Stannis is, is getting better in terms of the 10,000-foot view. But his, his eye on the ground, he's starting to lose it, and that we're going to see that come to the fore in a storm of swords when Stannis and Davos have that great standoff, where Stannis says, what is one, one person against an entire continent full of people? And Davos says everything. That individual life matters too, and you got to find a different way. you got to find a way of squaring that circle. It's, it's not Stannis revealing that he was a villain all along to me. It's Stannis revealing that he's trying to be a hero, but I think he has a flawed, incomplete, and ultimately failed understanding of what a hero really is. And I think A Song of Ice and Fires is pushing us in that direction. As Frank said near the beginning of this episode, it's Stannis as a trial run for John and Danny to see how far you can push the hero, quote unquote. Anybody who kills an innocent child is a villain. There's no way around that. Like you can't, there's no way you can spin it. And I spent thousands of words in this page to articulate why I think it's not bad to root for Stannis. But ultimately, he's going to put the torch to the pyre and that makes it a villainous act. And as Stannis himself would tell you, you cannot use the good to wipe out the bad and vice versa. 
the point that Martin is saying, because when he gives the interview where he calls Stannis a righteous man, we know he has this in mind, that this is what's coming. And yet it doesn't seem to impugn that take on him. So I think we're meant to, when we read Stannis, artic- find out why that is. Agreed completely. And as you were saying, there's that, that addition to the quote, it's in spite of everything, he's a righteous man, which is, is, is very crucial that George is asking us to reconcile the idea that this one person can exemplify the the best in humanity and the worst in humanity that's an ambitious character project especially for a non-point of view character but i think we're seeing in this chapter how well george pulled it off so i think that just about wraps up our discussion for the chapter itself moving on to just a little bit of foreshadowing and groundwork there was much more of that last week with all the azor high portentousness stuff but a little bit for this week we do get the first mention by name of Edric Storm. Stannis claims he needs the boy to cast doubt on Joffrey's claim, which Catelyn will also assume is his purpose, but the truth will wait for a storm of swords. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's not true when Stannis says it. I don't think he's lying. I think what's really happening is Mel's lying to him. Mel probably knows what she wants Edric, that she wants him for the flames all along, but in keeping with her bringing Stannis along slowly through obfuscation or just outright not telling him, as with the Nisa Nisa analogy, I think Stannis generally does want to use Edric as a comparison shot for the Lannister kids. The big question comes, though, is if Mel is really into the Azor Ahai Nisa Nisa moment, that you have to give up something of value, does she think that Edric is him and then she goes to Shireen when Edric gets away, or did she always know that it was going to have to be Shireen, and she just wants to get Stannis in the mindset that he's willing to do it, so it's not that far of a push when they have to get to Shireen? I think it's the latter. I think Melisandre realizes that Stannis is going to recoil from the Shireen ask, and that she needs to get him to buy into the concept of sacrificing a child first, with a child he doesn't particularly like and who reminds him of the brothers he hated. So I think it's, it's an intermediary step for Melisandre. I think the initial plan was to have Stannis sitting on the Iron Throne when he did it because she didn't think he was going to lose the Battle of Blackwater. She wasn't thinking of using Edric Storm in this like desperate position when Stannis is about to lose the war. But yeah, I, that's, that's my guess is she wanted to have him sacrifice Edric Storm down in the south to get him on board with the idea and then eventually go north and sacrifice Shireen. That's my guess. What do you think, Jeff? Pretty much agree with that. I think it's an intermediate step. And I think we also have Stannis burning other people as well, which Bellasunder then kind of puts these people in front of Stannis, like Alistair Florin, uh, especially in A Storm of Swords, where, where he is burned in order to speed Stannis' ships up north and being like, well, now that you've already had this kind of policy of burning people, then why not just keep burning people, you know? Once you pop, you just can't stop. Right, exactly. On the same note about Edric Storm, our final little bit of foreshadowing groundwork is, and I was rereading this today, is that Davos would realize in his third chapter in Dance of Dragons that him saving Edric Storm was a bit of a two-sided sword. On the one hand, yes, save the innocents. Absolutely. That's Davos's philosophy and his ideology in a nutshell. On the other hand, though, he recognizes in the Merman's court that he has no proof of Cersei's incest when he's called out on it. Do you actually have proof that Stannis is Robert's actual legal heir? Well, I mean, I, I, I did once with Edric Storm, but um, he, he's gone. Sorry, can't, can't get him back anytime soon. And he does, this is, I think, is a less of foreshadowing that George intended this to be something that he would use for Davos's arc down the road in White Harbor as an intentional callback to Davos one from A Clash of Kings and the same argument that Stannis makes about why he needs Edric Storm in his possession in order to prove his claim to Robert's airship. It's calling back to to the argument and issue that Ned had because, yeah, he does the right thing by Sansa. Sansa is saved. He saves that one innocent but in so doing, you've let the Lannisters kind of go run rawshod by refusing to take the deal and making them kill you 
in an obvious way. Your confession helped power a regime that is killing way more innocents than Sansa. And it goes back to this question that Amon and so many of the characters and ultimately Martin are posing. You're saving the one innocent, and that's a worthy goal, and that's Davos. That's everything. But then there's all these other innocents in the Riverlands and throughout Westeros, and then for the coming long night, if you could sacrifice one innocent person to stave off the one night, the long night, a series of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other innocents, what do you do? And I think Martin Martin himself doesn't have as good a clean answer as Davos. I think he likes Davos's intuitively. He likes Davos's perspective, but he doesn't know if it's the right one. Well said, both of you. For our discussion portion of this episode, in honor of the first scene between Stannis and Davos, one of the great iconic relationships in A Song of Ice and Fire, I want to ask you guys, do you think there's ever going to be another Stannis and Davos scene in the books, or have they met for the final time? The last time we saw Stannis and Davos was in A Storm of Swords in that dramatic moment when Davos had just sent off Edric Storm and was reading the letter from the Night's Watch in hopes of explaining himself and saving his life. Next time we see Stannis, he and his forces have turned up at the Wall, but he has left Davos behind on the East Watch by the sea. Later on, when we get to a dance with dragons, Stannis hangs out at the Wall for a while, then marches south against the Boltons. Meanwhile, Davos is sent on a mission to White Harbor and from there to Skagos. So Stannis and Davos have not interacted since that scene at the end of Storm of Swords. So I thought we'd, we'd just uh, go around the three of us and say whether we think it's likely that they're going to interact again in the books, and or not, and then we'll start uh, digging into what the scenarios might be. So for me, I could see it either way, but on the whole, I probably lean no, they're not going to interact again. Frank, what do you say? Uh, again, for me, I can see it either way, and I can see so many ways that Martin could make it very interesting, but I lean yes. And as opposed to any of you leaners, you two leaners there, I'm saying absolutely no, that they will never interact again in A Song of Ice and Fire. As the firm partisan, want you explain yourself, Jeff? All right. Davos talks about his his, his wife, Mario, and his younger sons that are on their keep in the in, in the Rainwood. Throughout the narrative in A Song of Ice and Fire, but in all of Davos's chapters, he has this constant refrain that he's going back to and that he feels that he's abandoned his sons both to the flames on the Blackwater as well as abandoned his sons and his wife to the terrors and the horrors of the war. He's not there to protect, save, or help them. But what I think is going to happen is that after Skagos, whatever is going to happen there, that Davos is going to get word of what's happened to his family and the arrival of the Golden Company in the Stormlands. And one of the things that's brought, that's made known in A Dance with Dragons in John Kynaston's second chapter, The Griffin Reborn, is that they've taken several castles along the coast of the Stormlands to include places in the Rainwood. What I think is going to happen in The Winds of Winter then is that Davos' story is going to resemble very closely the Odysseus story in that we have Odysseus sailing back to save his family from the men who have taken over his house and are attempting to seduce his wife and tell him that, that Odysseus is dead. What I think is going to happen is that all the foreshadowing that Davos is very concerned about his wife, about his family, about all the this family and his house seat that he's left behind is going to come into fruition. He's going to take the story that Stannis tells to Davos in the Storm of Swords about how he chose blood over honor and apply that to his own life. He's going to choose his blood, that is his wife and his younger children, over the honor of serving Stannis Baratheon. I think it's going to be sad, though, as we talked about in the pre-episode, which is available, of course, for all our high lords, ladies, and our small council members. Stannis and Davos conversations are among the best conversations in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, and I would make the argument that they are the best conversation pieces in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's a little sad that we will, we will never have another Stannis-Davos conversation, but I think that's ultimately where the story is going for, because ultimately, I don't think that Davos is going to be there when Stannis sacrifices Shireen, and that is what is ultimately going to be important, is that Stannis doesn't have the voice there saying, don't sacrifice the innocence, don't sacrifice your soul 
to save the world. It's not going to work out for you. And I think that's the narrative plot pathway that George has in mind to get Davos out of the way so that Stannis can make the choice, and it will be his choice, of course, to sacrifice Shireen. So that's my argument for why absolutely Stannis and Davos will never, ever interact ever again. I think you made the key point that Davos has to not be there in order for Stannis to make this call to sacrifice Shireen, not only because Davos might be able to convince Stannis, but he'd make some last-ditch attempt to get Shireen out of there if it seems like Stannis was definitely going to do it. And George needs to concoct a way in which he can keep Davos away. It might be your great theory about Davos going south to save his family. It might be uh, Chloe's great theory, which we will not spoil here. But I think overall, yeah, George will, will come up with that obstacle because otherwise... Uh, Stannis will not make the plunge that he's definitely going to. Now, I could potentially see if Stannis doesn't immediately die after sacrificing Shireen. I could see them maybe having an interaction afterwards before Stannis dies, after Davos comes back, where Stannis unburdens his soul and confesses what he's done. But there's also like a fanfic element to that that's just kind of a scene (laughs) I would want to see. I don't know if it's necessarily a scene that that is going to happen. And I think it's critical that Stannis didn't just dispatch Davos to White Harbor. He specifically has been keeping the king's men away from him. John hears that Stannis is angry with them because they defied him on Dragonstone regarding Edric Storm. And now Stannis thinks that Davos is dead. If you look at Theon's released Winds of Winter chapter, he believes, uh, you know, the, the mummers show that the Manderleys put on executing a man in Davos's place. So he thinks his conscience is gone once more like Proudwing. If he doesn't learn better, that may be one of the reasons he goes over the top with Shireen, not because he's just because he's separate from Davos, but because he thinks Davos is gone. So, Frank, tell us why we're wrong. <laughs> I think there's a lot of stuff that I agree with you guys, both in terms of Jeff's like plot line. I really like the idea that he's going south and choosing his family over his king. He can't be there for Shireen. As we've talked about, this series in a lot of ways is a joke on Stannis Baratheon. So I think one of the jokes that we could get is for Stannis to think that Davos is dead because of the Manderleys. And then get Davos back and be just, we might see Stannis be actually happy. He's at the apotheosis of his entire arc. He's kicked the shit out of the Boltons. He's destroyed the phrase. He's in Winterfell. There are people pledging him loyalty and he's about ready to execute the Manderleys. And they're like, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. We got somebody. We, we, we got a guy. And then in walks Davos and you have Stannis genuinely happy. And then Davos gets the letter from Jon Khan saying, we have your family. And Davos slips out of the night and then the wall comes down and then Stannis doesn't have Davos there. And then it's just all of this tumbling awfulness. And then you get Mel saying, you knew the price and she's got a torch and that's how we end. So I, I, so really I'm just cheap. I'm just, I'm not, I don't have anything. (laughs) I don't have anything original other than your guys' ideas and just transposing a series of events that has Davos there and then abandoning Stannis. Because, again, like you guys say, in much the same way that Stannis has to make the choice to sacrifice Shireen, I think Davos has to make the choice to abandon Stannis and have Stannis know it to kind of hmm, with their arc. Because they ha- cause Davos tapping out under cover of him being dead, like some, you know, thief in a, you know, a, a heist thriller. You know, that, that, that doesn't really work. That doesn't resonate, at least for me, their relationship. I think their relationship ultimately has to culminate with Davos taking the lessons from Stannis that he's given him and say, my family means more, which Stannis will not make the decision of. I think it really works well with the idea that Stannis' victories are almost immediately undercut 
That just about wraps us up for a Clash of Kings Davos 1. Thanks to everyone for listening as always, and thank you so much to Frank for joining us. It's been a really fun pair of episodes, sir. Thank you. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure, and tonight I really enjoyed and I appreciate you guys letting me go on as many rants as I did, and just a phenomenal episode. And I, I do want to thank your listeners the feedback I've been getting about this episode. Some of it's been trolling, but that's to be expected. But uh, some of it has been very <laughs> kind, and I do appreciate it, and thank you guys all. And I can't wait for the other guests that you guys are going to have on, uh, and, you know, guest temper uh, will always hold a special place in my heart. Well, thanks, man. It was a lot of fun having you on. They weren't rants. They were they were excellent monologues, I would say. They definitely blew my hair back, what little I have left of it. So it's, it was a lot of fun. So as always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. You can check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire. WordPress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Sir Sorsadelica, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, the first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Nerybold, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, Justiciar of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, and our newest High Lord, Sir Courtenay, What Did the Five Fingers Say to the Face, Penrose. Hamilton picked that name just so I would have to say it. What a wonderful <laughs> tribute. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies as always. Thank you, and always, and then welcome to Sir Courtney. What did the five fingers say to the face, Penrose? Excellent name. So, join us next week for another brand new point of view, as to borrow from our recent guest, Stephen Atwell, Dion Greyjoy, as he walks smugly and confidently into a series of rakes. He's also one of my favorite POVs, along with Davos, and it'll be nice. Guest Temper was awesome, as Frank said, but it'll be nice to have a chapter to ourselves, just because this is a really dense introductory chapter there's going to be a lot to tear into so thank you so much for listening and thank you to our, our gracious high inquisitor Saint Sir Frank B for, the, for joining us as a guest and we will see you guys next week